Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Nine minutes after one. Good afternoon to you. This is Life Happens. You're on SAFM and my name is Pimelo Mutina. I have got our regular guest today, Tessa Dooms, our social analyst and uh, director at Jasoro Consulting. And Tessa joins us now on the line. Good afternoon, Tessa. And today you want to talk about, in light of Mandela Day, the community work and volunteer work, your concerns are why it doesn't get the, the kind of attention and remuneration as we see in commercial business, for instance. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, great to be back um, today. Yes, um, I think we, we do have an important and interesting um, set of circumstances in our country around um, community development and community work and social sector work. And things like Mandela Day do highlight that we often think of community work as something that should be done for free and something that should be done on a volunteer basis. But this is also in a country where um, all of us know at least one community worker and somebody who's um, worked in their community tirelessly, either young people, older people, who are those mainstays of our communities, who understand how our communities work, who know who the vulnerable people are amongst us, who are the ones creating the networks and many of the opportunities. And yet we we don't seem to think of that as work. We don't seem seem to think of it in the same way as we do work that should be remunerated um, and work that should be valued, and those people as people who have careers in community service. Yet we are very celebratory of things like Mandela Day, where we have voluntary acts um, of service. And I think that there are some issues that are important to unpack around that. Mm. I mean, let's, let's go into unpacking those issues. Why that, that attitude exists, for instance, in your, your take? So I think there's a combination of things. I think there is a historical element to it, where um, during a past date, um, during the liberation struggle, volunteerism and, and community development was not something that um, the system... Um, and the government of the day was going to acknowledge as important and acknowledge as something that would be valued. And this is um, very different in stark contrast to other parts of the world. Mm. Um, If you think about like the US, the Mm. UK, um, Germany, where the state actually puts aside budgets, where it will um, invite people to to bid into the state as they would for other companies to provide services to support the state's um, social engagement and social work, so looking after the homeless, um, providing social security programs, providing programs that do support for education. The state actually sees itself as contributing towards that sector. And, of course, in apartheid, we would not expect a state to do that. Mm. And so as communities, and black communities particularly, we took it upon ourselves to create those kinds of networks. But in a... Um, post-democratic era, surely we should start to see value in that enough that we are willing to invest in it. But we have not made that shift in mindset, both at a government level, but also in the community, where we realize that this is actual work and it's actually adding value and it's allowing us to be able to do things even economically and should so be seen as careers rather than just something that you're doing um, in your spare time. 
you know, you know, Tessa, what amazes me often about this, this sector is, so for instance, even when government starts committing to doing uh, this kind of work, so where there is a money set aside for, for social development and so on, you often don't see them going back to people who already have started programs. So people who've got insights and so on to say, you know what you're doing, how do we support you? You almost see a parallel kind of process where they want to set up something completely new and unfortunately often get it wrong because they don't go back to consult with people who've been doing it already. Well, actually, many times they do. Just those people get lost in the process and they get lost. Um, in. And if you think about CSI projects, many big companies that are rolling out CSI projects, especially at local community levels, there's no way that they can do those community projects without local expertise, without those local community workers who have their own projects and are doing those things. But then when you see those projects being rolled out, nobody tells you about the mama mm. who had to help them get the list mm. from the community, who had to help them um, organize the stakeholders, who had to help them talk to the municipal manager, who had to help them figure out the venue. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks about those community workers who are there in and out every day and most importantly, nobody remunerates those people. Mm. So the CSI manager that's coming from the big corporation <laughs> is getting a, a salary. Mm. All of those people who are coming there and providing services are getting a salary. But the person who knows the community, who's giving the insights, who's giving the support, that person is just given a, a clap, uh, a shake of the hand mm. and given a, a bunch of roses and said, thank you very much for giving us access to your community. And that is not a rewarded job. Mm. And so we even see it in international um, donor organizations mm. where there's a disturbing trend where people will say, we will, we will support your project and we will fund the activities of your project, but refuse to pay you for yeah. any work that you will do as the community activist. And I think that is a very problematic standard that we've come to accept. In fact, Tessa, one of the things that I have discovered over the past, what, five years, where a lot of NPOs are really, really struggling, many of them are citing the fact that even when they are successful in raising funds, for instance, when it was possible to raise funds, the funds are geared at the program and they are not supposed to use that money for administrative purposes so nobody can be paid um, from that 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 money that comes in in the office or running the office for instance it's just it's just not allowed 100 percent. and people will cite and and in other parts of the world this does not happen hmm. you will not go to to germany and tell a community organization in germany that we're going to give you money to um, feed people in your community, but we're not going to pay you. Mm. But somehow in Africa, we are told we cannot trust Africans to not be corrupt and to not do things for selfish gain. And so we're not going to remunerate them and we're not going to trust them with money to pay salaries. This is in a continent where we have high rates of unemployment, where we have high rates of social ills, where we have high rates of people being able to access things like education and all of that. But we expect to use the talent and the resources and capabilities of young Africans particularly, but we do not want to trust people with money to feed themselves and their own families. And so you have a situation where organizations can tick on their box Yes, we went to community X and we did community, we did the following activities and so many children were supported and so many children were helped and they are getting the salary. Uh, the fund manager gets their salary. 
the person who is the one who's writing the report gets their salary. But the actual people doing the work apparently need to do it for free. And that cannot be something that we accept. I mean, um, I, I know so many young, young people who have devoted their entire lives to community service and community efforts. And people will say to them, when are you going to get a job? Mm. When are you, why don't you use all of this energy that you have to start a business? And my question is, if that young man uh, um, or young woman stops. stops doing the things that they're doing, yeah. who is going to be the one that supports the children after school during tutoring? Mm. Who's going to be the one who brings in the stakeholders to do the feeding scheme? Those things are actual work. They're not just a side activity. Somebody actually has to commit their time and their life to that, but then you tell them they must go and get a job. It's because we don't value it. And on the, on the other hand, we say things like, you know, when we talk about gender-based violence, that we must stop being so reactive and we must start, you know, teaching children and teaching the boy child. It has to be somebody's job to teach the boy mm. child. It has to be somebody's job to educate the community. It has to be somebody's job to change the norms and the values and the views and the perspectives. And if we believe that those things are important for building our society, surely we must start investing in what I call the social economy, where we have workers who are competent, who are willing, who are invested, and who are remunerated so that they don't go on to the private sector and make profit for someone else. I'm going to take your calls, and I see your voice notes also coming through on 891 That's the telephone number, and the WhatsApp number is 614 Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. Good afternoon, Pimelo and SAFM listeners. I think this thing of volunteerism was going to work if we have ethical and grounded workforce, particularly in the public service as well as municipalities. The challenge is that people who are employed there, once they get permanent appointment, they become lazy, they don't want to work. The volunteers are going to come in there and take over. What is going to happen? Isn't that going to create conflict? Thank you very much. This is TK Ladysmith. Interesting point. Tessa Dooms is my guest. She's a, a social analyst and she's also a director at Jasaro Consulting. Tessa, what your take on that voice note? Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point that what you have is um, people who are employed either in the private or the public sector um, many times not doing their jobs and not doing the things that would contribute to society and do those things well. And so volunteers feel like they have to step in to do that work. That if, if they don't do it as volunteers, nobody else will do it. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the point for me, though, is that, yes, somebody else is being paid to do that work and is not doing it, and it would be better for that person to do their job. But I'm also at the point where I want to, give the, I want to pay and reward people who actually do the work. And I don't want to use the excuse of somebody else who's not doing their job to say that the person who has done the job should not be remunerated. I think there's a lot of questions around accountability, both in the state, even in the NGO sector, where a lot of money is being spent. And oftentimes those same people who are supposed to in the NGO sector um, do the work, don't end up doing the work and delivering what they need to. And that's a question of accountability. But my question is for the people who do step up, especially for those who they don't have other employment elsewhere. They don't have anything else. They have a commitment to solving the problems in their communities. I think that there's an opportunity here to really solve those um, or, or address that by giving those people their due reward. And really, it's a job creation issue as well. I think we've seen in the time of COVID, 
one of the big things that we're going to have to take as a lesson from COVID is ask ourselves, can we create jobs in the social economy mm. with helping children with tutoring services, with creating more community health care workers and people who are willing to go into our communities, with creating more um, social um, protection programs and programs around feeding schemes? And is that not an opportunity to employ those people rather than expect them to be volunteers when they themselves are vulnerable people? Tamba, you're calling from Umlazi. Good afternoon. Hello, Pemelo. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Go ahead, Tamba. I'm good, thank you. I'm not sure if what I'm going to talk about is uh, relevant to your guests there, but I think in this time of remembering our icon and what he's for, I'm actually uh, interested, you know, these uh, issues of inequality that happened in the mining industry, we don't tend to discuss all those kind of things. Let me just give you maybe a little bit of a background of what I'm trying to talk about. You know, Danilo, in this country, compulsory education for white people started in 1890. And 100 years later, in 1994, that was only when the compulsory education was introduced for black people. And in the mining industry, if you check on the history, the pay gap between a white miner and a black miner was about on a ratio of 15 is to 1. And at that time, miners used to get occupational Lyme diseases, more especially silicosis and TB. And white miners at that time, they were compensated in terms of pension fund. In fact, lump sum monthly pension fund. When a black man will get only a lump sum with a ratio of 15 to 1, if a white man gets 15 rand, a black man will get a rand without a monthly pension. And then... The lawyer that I respect very much, Richard Spohr, brought in a class action suit, which was finalized, I think, last year on the 26th of July. And then it came about with what we call Tiamiso Trust. And there's money involved there to compensate those people. So now, if you look at this kind of thing, I want to challenge the trade unions or the unions which came to represent poor workers, especially black people. This money is going, to distrib- is going to be distributed equally to black people and white people. While in actual fact, white people have benefited already from the compensation, which I believe some of those are still benefiting even now. And if you look at the, this Tiamiso trustee or board of trustees, it's made up of seven members. Only one member is a black person, the black woman. I know they are qualified or something, but it makes sense because they had privilege in education. You know, Pamela, are you still there? I'm here. I'm I'm trying to get to I'm trying to connect the dots. I'm listening. Yes. So I'm trying to challenge the trade union and our sleeping ANC government to look at this Tiamiso trustees, whether it serves the purposes of the affirmative action 
as contemplated by the Employment Equity Act, to correct the disparities that happened during the apartheid time. You know, Pamela, removing the laws of apartheid are just not enough to correct what happened. This is, these are the times when we have these conversations. We cannot let things happen like this. This service or trust or board of trustees must be reviewed. And even if you can check the way those people were appointed, they appointed, they do not represent the black people at all. Sure. I think Tim, Tim, I guess this, I mean, some of these things that is... don't get attention. Yeah, I mean, this is. I don't know if Tessa wants to 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 respond to this, but it's it's. I mean, it's it's a little bit off topic, but I mean, I don't know if you want to give it a shot, Tessa. No, I think it actually falls very well within um, the kinds of dynamics that we're working with, in terms of whose um, whose work and whose labor gets valued and whose does not, and um, especially in terms of things like um, you know trusts and NGOs and NPOs. It is true that in our country, even as we speak, that the majority of people who benefit greatly from, um, you know, social sector money are those people who are sitting in high management positions, who are in trusts and who are in boards and all sorts of things, and who are running the NGO space, when the people who actually do the work get very little of that. And it, and it is cut along racial lines. It's cut along gender lines. And so we don't have systems that reflect very fairly whose work gets valued and whose work does not get valued. And so whether you're looking at it in the private sector or in this case in the social sector, we certainly do have a long way to go in terms of rewarding people just and equitably for the work that they do and what they put in and not having it go along the inequalities in our society being reproduced in these spaces. Hmm. The only thing is that I think Timber Timber wants, I think, direct solutions and and somebody to intervene. And I... you know, I'm afraid I don't think you can do that right now and commit to that. So, Katemba, we'll, we'll try and see how we can assist in the background and see, you know, that's, that takes quite a bit. Um, but I think, Tessa, you're spot on about the dynamics there that, that are actually quite common in many, many areas. So let me just continue to take um, uh, those calls on 891 I'll also take your WhatsApps. I see all of them. I just want to go quickly to Uti Lesaku for the latest in headlines before we continue. It's one thirty. Life happens with Pinelo Mutine. I don't understand why uh, this has to be so difficult. If an NPO or an NGO has got a staff um, component or a volunteer component, register them um, and uh, as UIF, as salary earners, they should be getting um, whatever the minimum salary um at least the minimum salary required for the hours that they put in. Um, that then goes on to the NPO or the NGO's bookkeeping. Because um, whenever a, do- a donor wants to see whether or not these guys are legit, you can ask for their for their financials. Um, and then you can see what the CEO of the NPO earns. And, um, and then you can see whether or not this guy's just a fat cat wanting to milk the system or whether he's actually a legit uh, NPO or NGO and he's paying himself a fair salary and his volunteers or staff at the NPO or NGO are also getting a fair salary. And then Bob's your uncle. Off you go. Chris from Eastern Cape. Hi, Pamela. 
I just want to find out from your guest, do we have in South Africa any organization or association of uh, uh, volunteerism or volunteers? I think that will help a lot because to some extent, as much as we was to put some authority or responsibility to government and other authorities, uh, some other time uh, politicians will never take side of a good side of things. So us as citizens, we need to see what we can do and leave politicians out of this because their interests come before anybody else's interest. So I want to know if we have that organization so that uh, we can work together to, to do things on our own as citizens. Thanks, bye-bye. Afternoon, Pamela. Uh, it's a very interesting topic and a very important topic what you were saying regarding volunteers. Uh, we had a volunteering system at some point uh, with the clinics. Uh, I was a volunteer with the Red Cross uh, with the uh, basic ambulance assistance that I, I was trained. I volunteer with St. John's ambulances at some point. And, uh, and those people are not even recognized or able to get an employment ambulance system right now. Uh, we were just a volunteer, not paid. And when you get into a sector or an ambulance sector, and those who are actually paid within the unit, and they'll overuse you because you're a volunteer, and they will take a seat back uh, up until... All right, Tessa, I'm so sorry, we've, we've just uh, lost that particular voice note. Tessa Dooms is my guest. She's a social analyst and director at Jasora Consulting. Tessa, interesting comments coming through. In fact, I'm, I'm particularly interested in how, how you see um, Chris's comment from the Eastern Cape. And I think what you're saying is, yes, there's another layer. There's a, there's a layer of a person that is actually in the community who wasn't necessarily employed by the NPO, who you arrive in their community and ask for assistance and you don't factor them into the structure. So it's another layer. Tessa? So, yeah, there are those layers of the informal um, community workers and um, who struggle to formalize, who struggle to kind of um, get some sort of formality going. But um, I'm actually uh, talking about the same people that Chris is talking about, where, as you said earlier, in the NPO and NGO sector, where you have donors and you have funders who simply refuse to pay for stuff and who, who simply say in our, you know, in our funding structure, we refuse to pay for stuff. And I think all that, we, that, that, that those organizations ask for is, like Chris has said, that you trust the organizations to do the right things. You say to them, it's contingent on you registering with UIF. It's contingent on you keeping books. And organizations can do those things. Organizations can be capacitated to do those things. But there simply seems to be a resistance to even do that. And in some cases, I think it's a woeful resistance because if you can get away with it for free, why not do it? And I think that's what you want to avoid in the system is um, feeling that I can get free labor out of social um, services as opposed to valuing it. Mm. Some of the other voice notes, do you want to respond to the one around uh, is is there an organized group of people who are volunteers where people can reach out to, to those, to that association or an organization? So I, I, to my knowledge, there's not an organized group of um, 
I mean, I think he's talking about volunteer, protecting volunteer mm, rights and yeah. protecting volunteer. Mm. Um, and so I don't think that there, I know of an organization that is like that. Mm. But certainly we have had in this country, even in democracy, um, umbrella bodies that have kind of been governance in the, the civil society space. But I don't think right now we have a very organized civil society in that way where you can take grievances around social sector work um, in the civil society space or worker rights issues. And so there aren't very many um, protections. I think probably the closest we get to that now are organizations that, for instance, run things like um, National Youth Service Program, where at least you have a cohort of young people coming into a particular program. They're volunteers, but they have stipends, and they have some level of being organized in a National Youth Service Program. But um, for the most part, many organizations, grassroots community-based organizations and community workers are largely on their own. Tessa, I want you to just highlight to what detriment is our negligence of, of the sector and, and, and not recognizing these people that you're talking to. What will be the outcome of our future if we don't go ahead and actually do what you're asking us to do? I think we're already experiencing some of those outcomes. Um, I think we find that we live in societies where we have increasing numbers of social ills that go unaddressed. And um, because we, we have um, workers in the sector that are unprotected, that are informal, that are not given capacity or training, or organizations that are unaccountable, we are missing the opportunity to build our society from the bottom up, to build the society we want rather than to be firefighting all the time. So I made the example earlier of gender-based violence. Surely we want to become a community in a country that's no longer just talking about you know, reactive measures and the policing and making sure we have harsh sentences, but we want a community where we build a society where gender-based violence doesn't happen anymore. But until we invest in that, we are losing out the opportunity to build the society that we want. And then the second opportunity is, is a straightforward one in terms of using people's capabilities to the max and um, creating employment opportunities through it. I mean... You should not have to um, say to yourself that you have no real career just because you are a community development worker. That should be a career path that a person or anybody can choose, and they can choose it, and it's not only to their, to their own advantage in terms of having employment, but to the advantage of the community and, and others. And so we don't have high unemployment as much as we have underemployment in mm-hmm. our country where people who could be employed and valued and are making efforts are not being, um, not being seen and valued by the system. Um, I often speak to young people around the country, and there are so few young people who I come across who say, I do nothing every day. Mm-hmm. So many of them do something, and they're trying to make a contribution. But that contribution is not seen, mm-hmm. it's not valued. They can't put it on their CV because they don't know that anyone cares about it. And I think we're missing an opportunity to um, harness the demographic element, as it were, and get our young people working and contributing to our society. Hmm. Really food for thought there. Thank you so much, Tessa. Tessa Dooms is a social analyst and director at Jasoro Consulting. She's a regular on the show. And 
really we, we try and talk about things that are going to assist in our social cohesion. How do we uh, become better, a better society? And how do we start thinking differently about some of the issues that are confronting us and, and, and we're not confronting? So this speaks directly to, for instance, I know that uh, Bongi Kuala later on will be touching on the briefing that happened um, earlier on that was the security cluster briefing in, uh, in the National Command Council. And it's things like, how do we move away from getting the police to monitor, for instance, use of masks, right? So it's a regulation now in public, people must use masks. But what if I come across somebody who's not using masks? What if a, an entire community is not adapting and, and adopting that policy? Well, somebody needs to go out there and make sure that it happens. But are you going to criminalize the entire community? No, you don't want them to have a criminal record. You want some sort of program. And that's where people on the ground come in, where you've got volunteers, and sort of people who are going to make it a, a movement, a program, rather than criminalizing the entire society. And, and that's what Tessa is talking about. There are people like that, but do we incentivize those people? That's the question. So we all want things to change and move. We want a society where we can have the sale of alcohol and not be motherless drunk. But who's going to take that on and make sure that we start being responsible once the sale of, of alcohol is back on the table? Somebody's maybe interested in that, but do we incentivize that person? We've got young people who are, are, are doing a lot in trying to address gender-based violence, but who, who's going to pay for their time and their efforts and so on? And yet all of us want to live in a society where there is no violence. So those are some of the things that we need to think about, because unless we incentivize that kind of effort, we are very likely to see those people fizzle out of, out of our systems. Therefore, leaving massive gaps and sitting with us are these problems that need to be sorted out. So that's the reason we're having this conversation. Thank you very much for all of you who are taking part in this conversation. I'll be back with more after this.